0: Hello, welcome to in the Words, the pod that's about how ideas improve lives. I'm your host, Jules Pretty from the University of Essex. <music> Delighted to welcome today, Koldo Kasler and Tara Van Ho from the School of Law at the University of Essex. In the show today, we're talking about law and human rights, local human rights, human rights and businesses, the work of the Human Rights Clinic, which you direct, Koldo. and Calder, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. So you both work in this area of human rights, uh, expertise and distinguished records in Spain in the USA and the UK. So could I just ask each of you to tell us a bit about your research on human rights and some of the practical applications, which we'll pick up, of course, during the show? Koldo?
1: Sure, yes. So I'm a lecturer in law and a member of the Human Rights Centre. I work mostly on social rights. So Social rights are the right to housing, right to health, right to education, social security. I also run a project called Human Rights Local. We can talk more about it. And I'm also the director of the Human Rights uh, Centre Clinic. Great. Well, we'll hear more about the clinic shortly. Mm -hmm. Tara?
2: Hi, my name is Tara Ho. I am a senior lecturer in the School of Law and Human Rights Centre. I specialize in business and human rights, particularly looking at how businesses impact on conflict and post-conflict societies, and how the law protects that activity or can better regulate it.
0: So, uh, thank you. So, we 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 have a kind of common area of, of thinking about the applications of human rights, how that can remove bads and create goods. Uh, both of these.
2: Yes. <laughs> in kind
0: of equal challenge, you know, there are bad things which we need to address, but also creating kind of new rights, as you were saying, Calder. Mm-hmm. So, could you start with a little bit on local human rights yeah. projects um, <laughs> from your perspective, and we'll come to the business side um, with you, Tara.
1: Sure. So, Human Rights Local is one of the projects of the Human Rights Centre. Uh, the idea of Human Rights Local is to connect the universal values that we that we believe in, that they are that are recognised in a number of international treaties, declarations, important proclamations at the diplomatic level. So to connect these important values that we believe in with the realities of people on the ground. Uh, in different communities in the UK. So it's it's very much a UK-based project. Uh, Initially Colchester and then other places in the UK. This really comes from um, a number of observations. Firstly, in the 2010s with the austerity years, there was an an awareness by colleagues in the Human Rights Centre that was before my time of the good work that people in the Human Rights Centre had been doing about human rights pretty much in all countries in the world but not so much about what was going on in the UK. And that was in the context of austerity, important retrogression in, in relation to housing, to poverty levels, to uh, social security. So th- so the colleagues of ours decided that it was important, uh, Tara was here at the time as well, um, that it was important to think a little bit critically about the reality of human rights in our own country. Also, while I was not at Essex at the time, but I was working on uh, with practitioners and in and academics in other institutions, trying to connect, um, you know, the realities, the activism uh, for human rights issues in different parts of the UK, of community groups that maybe. We're not using the frame human rights, but we're actually working on social rights. They were actually human rights activists without knowing that they were active human rights activists. So people that were working, you know, in food banks, people who were defending the libraries, so, so the libraries did being close, uh, people who were fighting against, uh, you know, rogue landlords. All these people are actually fighting for social rights, but maybe they are not using the frame human rights. So human rights local is connecting this. Um, these two observations are two realities, and we are working with community groups in different parts of the country to to train people so they can conduct locally relevant research and to connect these international standards with the issues that are important to them, the grievances that are important to them at the local level. And
0: I guess there's something similar is going on when you're talking to businesses, um, Tara, is, the, is at first a... Uh, not n- not a strong understanding that this thing called human rights, which appears to be kind of relevant or has emerged from kind of lots of global contexts, as you were saying, um, Koldo, uh, applying to them and then saying, well, this is how this could make a difference that would better your lives, but better your businesses as well.
2: Absolutely. I think a lot of what Koldo does at the local level Anil yamaz who's the co-director of the Essex Business and Human Rights Project with me. Anil and I do, internationally, um, looking at stakeholders, you know, people on the ground who have been impacted negatively by businesses, who have objections to sort of pollution in their community, to um, worker conditions, and helping them understand what human rights language means, and then going to businesses and saying, this is what you should be doing, this is how you can do it, and this is you know, alternative frameworks to what you've been doing that we can really use and and ensure that human rights are being respected within your operations. Um, it takes a lot of work to sort of get those translations down, but I think it's really important if, if we're going to have a society that really respects people at their heart, uh, that we need to have this conversation across all the different sectors. So not just with the state, but also with economic actors like businesses. Mm.
0: And could you say a little bit? I mean you've worked with the u n forum on business um business and human rights. Could you say a little bit about how that translation of kind of ideas and concepts then makes makes a kind of practical difference for people within within businesses or those who are regulating or policymakers yeah. range of possible um uh, areas, aren't there?
2: Yeah. So international law now has expectations on businesses. And it, it comes off as a very simple expectation, right? Businesses are to respect human rights, meaning they shouldn't interfere with your realization of human rights. But in practice, that can become quite complicated because businesses, by their nature, don't think about human rights. So if you have a company that starts you know, textile manufacturing... That involves a lot of things around workers' rights, but it also involves things like, how do you get rid of the chemicals that you're using to dye your jeans? Those, how you get rid of those chemicals will impact on other people's lives, right? Like it will potentially pollute a local water source, or it can be outsourced to someplace else that then has to absorb your garbage. So we talk through with with local communities, people who are affected by those kinds of decisions, what it is that they're experiencing, what they would like to see done differently. And then we work with them to sort of craft a narrative that you can go to businesses and say, this is what we want. Um, And sometimes businesses come to us and say, how do we do this? Um, You know, proactively realizing that they're going to have an impact. Uh, Last year, I I did some pro bono work for Twitter. I don't normally do pro bono work for corporations, (laughs) and it usually definitely isn't for one as big as Twitter. (laughs) But they were figuring out what to do about uh, miscommunication and also you know, portrayals of POWs in in Ukraine, all associated with the Russia invasion of Ukraine, and they wanted to know what to do. They wanted to be a good company, and so um, they, they asked for some advice and we gave it to them, and, and that impacted their policies, right? They reformed their policies to align with, with the guidance we gave. Uh, and it was nice to just sort of see that really concrete change that's better protecting people on the ground in Ukraine.
0: Mm. So you've got, you're able to take the pr- well-established principles
2: yeah.
0: um, applied in lots of contexts, and then take them into a into- specific context for individual companies or for local projects. Could we come back to some examples from your side, Koldo, where where that is that translation of the principles um, with, sure. within human rights actually makes a
1: difference for people's sure. lives? So two or three things that we've been doing with uh, Human Rights Local. Uh, Human Rights Local is a project that, as such, began in 2020. And uh, in the last three years, we've been doing a number of activities in terms of research, in terms of training. Um, I'll give you two or three examples. The first one is a piece of research we did on um, human rights cities. Um, So human rights cities are cities that declare themselves human rights cities. So they they formally say we are going to be inspired by these principles. Our approach to human rights cities, I have to say, was one of skepticism. So it's very nice. It's easy say, to declare something. It's very easy <laughs> to say, so, isn't it? So in principle, we were, OK, that's, you know, it's good. But what does it mean in practice? You know, what consequences does it bring, if any? What sort of policies do you implement as a result of declaring yourself a human rights city? Or what sort of policies do you stop implementing because of that very reason? So we looked at um, nine cities, six of them, uh, three of them in England, six of them in continental Europe. Uh, in Sweden, in Spain, in Austria, and the three in England were, one of them was uh, the first human rights city in England, York, and two others that are not self-declared human rights cities but use human rights to develop their housing and homelessness policies, Brighton and Newcastle. And the idea was not so much, even though our ambition really was to identify the impact of policy, the, the the observations were or the findings were more about the commonalities within these cities. What what do these nine places have in common, and uh, what lessons have they drawn, and would cities in Essex consider uh, you know drawing lessons from from that and implementing something out of it? Another piece of research we produced that was more recent, that was in May last year, was on poverty and social rights in Essex. Um, often when we uh, when we read about, you know, data on uh, housing, on uh, food poverty, on child poverty, those data, those numbers are aggregated and, are, you know, cover the whole of England. So we wanted to know exactly how people in Essex, in Colchester and near Colchester, in our home, how people experience these uh, uh, food poverty issues, uh, homeless access to housing, uh, evictions, um the closure of libraries. There is a very good example in Essex that we should be proud of, of a successful campaign to prevent the closure, the closure of, of libraries. 66% of libraries were going to close only a couple of years ago. And this successful campaign stopped that. It was a successful human rights campaign. So that's another piece of work we've been doing. And more recently, actually currently, we are working with um, a number of community groups uh, outside Essex, uh, groups such as a Thrive in Teesside, uh, Intisa in West London, uh, a rapper in Manchester, and also ATD Fourth World in South of London, to try to understand how families in poverty experience um, experience their relationship with child care protection services. And we are using that evidence to inform a process that happens in front of the United Nations every five years. It is now the UK's turn to report to the United Nations about what they're doing in relation to social rights. And we want to make sure that their voices, the voices of families in poverty, reach Geneva and that the committee hears about it uh, in relation to the UK. So we are helping these groups uh, do their own research and we are doing the research uh, ourselves as well. So there's quite a lot of kind of taking the voices of people in
0: their context and creating the space for those voices to be heard. Um, it's not just uh, sources of information that inform research. It is something empowering
1: as well at the same time. Is that that's part of the intention? That, it definitely. Yes. I've, I think for two reasons. For one reason is um, that their voices, that they are experts, really. I mean, they are not they're not yeah. victims uh, Sometimes they are victims of human rights abuses, definitely, yes, but they are not helpless. They are people who have a lot to share, um, who have expertise, different sort of expertise, lived experience. And therefore, if we want to understand an issue, say homelessness or say, you know, how families in poverty uh, experience child care protection services, then we need to listen to them. So that's one reason. But then another reason is also that their voices is also is not only informing the analysis is also the analysis itself. So the mm-hmm. more, as academics say, the phenomenological thing, right? So their experiences matter as a source of information. Not only, sorry, not only as a source of information, but as an end in itself. How they go about it tells us about the reality of housing, uh, social security, and poverty in our country.
2: Jules, can I just jump in here? Because um, first of all, you now you now understand why I just love working with Coldo, uh, because I feel like we share a lot in in terms of values around how we do our research and in terms of making sure that we create space for people to tell their own experiences because it is an end to itself, but also to serve as experts in areas that they're oftentimes degraded, right? When we talk about business and human rights, you'll often hear people talk about those who oppose certain kinds of activities or those who want uh, businesses to be held accountable as activists. And it's true that they are activists, but they're also experts in their own lived experience and in the realities of those situations. And so one of the things that we try to do with business and human rights, and that I know Koldo does really well with his his work uh, in, in all aspects of his work, is to take that and really translate it for people in government, people in international organizations, so that they're hearing directly from people who have been affected by their policies Uh, But then also understand the, the sort of lessons learned from those experiences so that we don't keep replicating the same problems over and over again, right? A lot of these things have solutions to them that have been garnered because... Because somebody else has already suffered this problem in the past Um, and kind of picking up on what those lessons learned are and trying to translate them and trying to give people an opportunity to share those lessons with each other, I think is a really important part of of the work that the Human Rights Center generally does, but then also what each of our projects do.
0: And are you trying to circle back as well once that information has been presented at Geneva or in other kind of international contexts or or a whole range of other opportunities? Are you circling back with some of that to the communities themselves to say um, this is this was your um, voice in the broader sense of uh, uh, on this particular issue? It's been used in this way. And these are the implications. These are the impacts. So circling back to people, is there a kind of, yeah. there's
1: not just an ethical reason for doing that, but there's something more, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. I can give you an example. Um, so I mentioned the UN review that is taking place now, uh, that all countries or most countries in the world go through it every five to six years. Uh, so the, it is now the UK's turn. And we, the community groups we're working with, uh, for most of them, it is the first time that they engage in this process. It, it has happened in the in the. Uh, for the UK has happened, this is already a seventh review. So in the six previous reviews, these community groups, which often are very small, uh, most of them were not involved, because they didn't know about it. Uh, Because as, as I said earlier as well, they, in my view, they were social rights activists, but they didn't use the frame human rights. So there was this opportunity to, you know, influence policy, or at least to try to do so. And they were not aware of it. So part of our work has been of building trust and sharing with them, you know, the opportunities that exist uh, in this engagement with the UN. There was one specific example in the sixth uh, review, in the last review, there was one recommendation from the UN for the UK government to implement a certain provision of the Equality Act 2010, Section 1 of the Equality Act, which shamefully has been there in the statute book since 2010 and now and the UK government refuses to implement it. That's uh, paragraph in that report from 2016, created or contributed significantly to a campaign called One for Equality. And there there have been members of parliament, local authorities, um, community groups all over the country, 80 NGOs, uh, academics who have been Advocating for the for the incorporation for the sorry for the implementation of section one of the Equality Act, which is now enforcing Wales, it is now enforcing Scotland, and not yet in the whole of the UK. But it, it, you know, it will it will happen, and I think you know that um, engagement in the last review in 2016 contributed to it. We'll see what happens now after this review, mm. which is ongoing now. That's
0: fascinating. So we do have this this transitional period um and if i could kind of come into transitional justice because i know that that that's a concept as well as part of this territory that that you're you're getting the voices you're you're transferring them in a particular kind of context identifying government policy international recipients and circling back with that as well um this takes time so it's not it's not a model that you can guarantee an outcome Uh, next week or next month Uh, but you in knowing how that works you have some confidence that this will be making a difference in in the certainly the medium term and possibly the short term as well
2: yeah i think so i i think the reality of human rights is that you're always sort of struggling against people who already have power and who enjoy a lot in the status quo right um And you're trying to find a way for them to create space within their own societies for other people to enjoy as much as at least as many rights as they do. Um, And within transitional justice, usually that process is a couple decades long, right? So, so it's only been in the last couple of years that Argentina has really started to sort of address claims that go back to the 1980s in the ways that the people who were affected by those claims want to have their claims addressed. Um, and we're picking up lessons from that to apply in places like Ukraine and and Yemen and Palestine, around how do you sort of restructure your societies? How do you restructure your legal systems? And how do you address and honor people's experiences um, in a in a way that's helpful for them? And that that's a it's a long process. It's a long process that involves a lot of um, difficult conversations for a society to have, um, and. It it's one, though, that when you can sort of pick up lessons from other experiences, you can craft those experiences. You can craft your new solutions in a way that's more sustainable for your own society. And you can sort of understand why certain things worked, you know, in South Africa and they didn't work in Rwanda or certain things were used in Rwanda and not in South Africa. and. By understanding those differences, you can then go to Colombia and say, here are your options, you know, like figure out what you think will work best for your society. And here's where we see opportunities and here's where we see pitfalls.
0: It's fascinating to hear how these commonalities from very different countries and contexts are able to be united and brought together in this kind of way. Caldo, you were chief of staff for the Human Rights Commissioner of the Basque Country for a while. Tell us a little bit about the detail of the experience of of uh, uh, a commissioner within
1: a, a country and how that worked. Yeah, that was about 10 years ago now. Yeah. It's uh, crazy how time, how time flies. But yes, I was the Chief of Staff between 2011 and 2013 of the, of the High Commissioner for Human Rights of the Parliament of the Basque Country, the Basque Country's region in the north of Spain. And um, so the the High Commissioner for Human Rights is the is the national. In other places, it's called the National Human Rights Institution. So it's an institution that is in that is independent from government, and is in charge of um, promoting human rights culture in the in this case in the region. Also, receiving complaints. um, So people that uh, may have experienced bad administration, they could always go to court. But courts are always, uh, you know. Uh, complicated and messy processes, <laughs> expensive processes, expensive uh, uncertain processes. So national human rights institutions or ombudsman institutions can provide a cheaper, more accessible alternative. Uh, not always enforceable. That's the downside. But um, it depends on the goodwill of the of the administration. And and uh, and yeah, and provide advice to different local authorities and public authorities on what they could do if they are going to take human rights seriously. 2011, 2013, the time when I was there that's also where i come from by the way obviously and it was an interesting time in 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 the region for a couple of reasons at least um um sorry um yes, I, I said um yes 2011 2013 in 2011 the late late 2011 that's when uh, eta the armed group declared uh the end of uh, violence uh putting an end to 50 years of violence that had resulted in about 200 people being killed, and many more people being um, many people being tortured, and many people uh, uh, having to flee the region. And it was the end, and it was very interesting to see it from, you know, very close range, really, how, you know, how um, people, families, how much the region changed uh, over the course of two years. And, for instance, I, I look at my nephew and nieces, who are 12 years old now, who were only... A year old or so when when this happened, and they th- sort the of things that they take for granted, that mm-hmm. uh, thankfully they had never experienced. So it was very good to be there that time. Also, at that time, 2011-13 was a time of a significant socioeconomic economic crisis, the first early years of the financial crisis, which resulted in evictions, in uh, rising inequality, and it was good to. To try to be at an institution that was trying to remind public authorities that whatever the financial difficulties you still have obligations in relation to social rights
0: yeah and
1: um, and do they
0: hear that I, I mean I could say the same thing when you 're talking to businesses as well, Tara um, uh, maybe not to begin with, but part of your job is there in whatever context, to remind people of those those opportunities because again, it strikes me that there 's this there's there's often an entry point in trying to stop bad things, but then you're also trying to create rights and opportunities and improvements for people, and and stopping bads and creating goods are not either side of the same coin. They're very often very different things that one needs to do. Um,
2: yeah, um, I would say. I think the skepticism I have when a business says they want to do human rights, it's the same skepticism Koldo has when cities say they want to be human rights cities. Um, that same skepticism they have when I come to them and say, here's some human rights issues you need to think about, and this is how you should do it. Um, getting people to you know, use the language of human rights, getting people to understand what it means, um, I think that there's a lot of problems in society and that people... Everyone thinks that their own understanding of human rights is the right one, um, and to an extent, there's value in that. Um, but to another extent, they're, they're, we now have sort of common language and standards. Um, and so when I say to somebody, you know, you're, you're talking about torture here— that's that's coming to me as a legal term, right? That has a definition to it, the same way that murder in English law has a definition to it. That you sort of tick off boxes to it. Uh, torture has a definition to it. So when I use that language, I'm using it with a legal weight behind it and saying this is this is what we're talking about. Getting people to understand that, getting people to understand that human rights isn't just. It isn't just how we feel.
0: It's not words. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's
2: not yeah. it's not fluffiness. Um, I think is is a long term process. It's a long term part of our work within as human rights academics, um, and I think it's one that that we we have a lot of problems getting across to people because um, it's not in a lot of people's interests to understand and to apply human rights. Right, like businesses can make a lot more money by not paying their workers. Anything, right? Like, like if you could pay your workers nothing, I mean that's called slavery. Mm-hmm. We have an experience with that. Businesses were way more profitable that way. Not helpful, not good for society, but very profitable. So getting them to understand that yes, there are some trade-offs here, but in the long term, those trade-offs are actually beneficial for our society as a whole. And also it goes beyond whether or not it's good for you as an individual business. It goes to what's good for us as a society and what other people's rights are. I think getting that that conversation going usually takes a really long time. And then once people get it, they usually really get it. How much they apply it, how much they apply the knowledge that they have, it was very much dependent on how much they want to apply it. Um, but sort of having that conversation, getting them to listen... In the first place, I think takes a lot of a lot of time.
1: Well, often it's about um, translating. I think a yeah. lot of the work we do, um, I, I don't work myself with businesses, but I feel that a lot of the work I do and I think you do and many of our colleagues do is about translating. Um, so translating from one approach to another approach. So, for example, if I try to persuade a local authority or a member of parliament or a civil society group that they should be taking seriously the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which has been signed and ratified by the UK and so on, by the time I say covenant, they (laughs) have already switched off, right? So, it sounds like very distant. It sounds international, alien... Not the reality of people, you know, not not the business. Respectfully, they're going to invite me to go somewhere else, right? (sighs) However, if you frame it in a way that instead of highlighting so much the international legal nature and importance of these things, you talk about the NHS, you know, mm. which is what this particular covenant is about. Really, it's about ensuring that people have access to healthcare, and the NHS is obviously a tool for that, or or housing. You know, you tell them that is is about. Uh, you know, ensuring that your house is uh, habitable, ensuring that you can afford it, ensuring that if you if you cannot afford it, that you have uh, access to public housing, um, that there is in, more investment in social housing, um, or such a, issues such as social security. Uh, poll after poll show consistently that people in this country care about paying people fair wages, pay, paying mm-hmm. people who need, uh, you know, adequate pension, adequate benefits. Uh, Increasingly, people are concerned about rising inequalities, material inequalities in terms of income and wealth. All these things are socioeconomic rights, which happen to be recognized in a number of treaties that is important. But they are important because they are important. They are recognized in treaties, not the other way around. So we need to speak to people in a language that makes sense to those people. That's what I meant by translating. Mm.
0: And is that similar translation happening in the UN forum, Tara? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this is very interesting how you're taking kind of common principles that have kind of moral and ethical components that apply to humans across all countries, we would say, and putting them in a context where they have direct application, but being very clever about it.
2: <laughs> yeah, it can be. Um, I
0: mean, it's not easy. It's I'd not be, easy. But if it were easy, it would be done already. Um, <laughs>
2: if it were but easy, I would of... be a wedding planner in Cleveland, Ohio. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I um, I do. When we go to the UN Forum, what it does is it gathers about 2,500 to 3,000 people every year in Geneva to come together and have these conversations around what do human rights mean when we're applying them to businesses? What do we expect from businesses? How do they go about just like simple day-to-day process of developing a framework for evaluating human rights in their organization? How do they go through the process of having conversations with people who are affected by their products or by their operations? Um, And so, that translation is at the heart of the UN Forum, really. It's it's about bringing all the different people who could be affected by this conversation or who have an interest in this conversation together um, in one place to have those deeper, deeper conversations as a field and and to try to get people to understand how to take that back to their own societies and translate it. So it's a combination of translation and empowering, lessons learned, really trying to get people to, to understand what has worked in one place and how they might be able to adapt that to their own place.
0: Take us inside the clinic, the human rights clinic, a little bit. What, how, do, how, does that, how does such a thing work? I think people can imagine a. <laughs> All sorts of health clinics, as you were saying Caldo, mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. uh, because they've been in them um but what does what what's happening in a a thing called the Human Rights Clinic.
1: Yes, so um, I have the um, uh, privilege of being the current director of the Human Rights Centre Clinic, but Tara has been involved in the clinic for a very long time. You were in the early years of the clinic. The clinic was set up in 2008 which also happens to be the time when (laughs) Tara and I were students. So I think we were, weren't we the first promotion that was in the clinic as students? Yep. And uh, and then Tara, sometime later, you were the director, weren't you? And uh, and I am currently the director of the clinic. So the clinic is quite a um, special um, thing. It was created, yes, about thirteen years ago. Um, is uh, we have twenty-four students, uh, postgraduate students. Twenty-four is approximately. So every year we have about a hundred or so students in different human rights programs. So it's about a, a quarter of them we uh, take the the clinic, and they do two things. Uh, firstly, they take a module, and in this is a spring term module, and this module is based on transferable skills that future human rights practitioners will need. Other than research, so we don't focus on research because all of the modules in <laughs> <at> the university <laughs> are <laughs> about research. Everything else is about research. We know how to do that bit. exactly. Yeah. So mm. we don't focus on research. We have one session on research, but then the rest, the other eight sessions, are on, on other things. Issues such as strategic framing. So how we how we are aware, how can we be mindful of the words that we use in the the metaphors that we are using, right? That this translation exercise, that the we stories we tell. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, another session on how to work with journalists so how to play how to how to plan your 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 relationship with a journalist how to keep a journalist interested how to carry out a, an interview with a journalist we we have mock interviews as well then we have a session on strategic litigation so the pros and cons of going you know of trying to bring your case to court and if you the risks of doing so also the potential advantages and if you do at what what venue should you try an international or a national one and of the international ones which one of the very many that are available also we talk of uh, impact assessment so how do you know that what you're doing makes a difference or not so all these things are very important things that a successful and impactful human rights practitioner will we we'll need to do, we'll need to learn how to do, and most universities do not really teach this, but we are an exception. So we, we do that. In parallel, these 24 students work in six projects uh, over the course of the academic year uh, with external partners. So these are projects that we have identified the previous year, so the previous academic year. Projects that some of them are local, some of them are national, some of them international. They have in common that they are important uh, topics, they address important topics, not necessarily super urgent topics, because we look for projects in February, uh, whose outcome, whose final report will come out in June the following year. So it's Eighteen months. If you, we tell potential partners, if you need an urgent answer next month, then you're not going to get it. You need to wait eighteen months. Give us a bit of time, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But they are uh, important questions, um, um, challenging projects because you know they have to be. They are going to be addressed by a talented team of four students under the supervision of a member of a staff over the course of eight months. So they have to be sufficiently difficult, but also deliverable. students and always the key the key thing is that they have to be impactful so we want to know from partners what they're going to do with the reports. So, the partners that we've been having, for example, last year we had the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which is the main agency on refugee issues in Geneva. We had the International Criminal Court Trust Fund for Victims in The Hague. Um, we had uh, Prodesc, which is a Mexican NGO working on economic, social, and cultural rights. Uh, we had the UN Population Fund in Southeast Asia. Uh, and this year we are working with um, ESCRNet, which is, uh, which is an international. NGO working on economic and social rights. We are also working with two partners in Northern Ireland. We are working with two environmentalist NGOs, one in the UK and one in the US. So diverse range of projects, impactful, deliverable, and always with this uh, component of training and pedagogy and transferable skills.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating. And it's, it, it, it's it interesting to think how those principles uh, that are applied within You're both in a school of law, and many people would think that, therefore, you must have a particular kind of approach to the thing called law, and that lawyers would be doing that. But you've been describing all sorts of active change, projects working with multiple partners, applying principles in difficult contexts, uh, often, well almost always when there's big power involved. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course, by definition, they, they're difficult. Power sits in the limelight and yes. <laughs> not not in the dark, doesn't it? Um, so I think that that is all fascinating. If you were thinking ahead, uh, let's bring things together um, a little bit for our conclusion. If you were thinking ahead five or ten years, what would be a kind of couple of observations and hopes that you would have about about priorities or expectations um, in in this kind of broad area of of uh, application of human rights in many different kind of institutional and policy contexts but you you 've got a kind of clear idea as to what good looks like, i think yeah. or what better looks like than than the current context as you were describing you are working with many people mm-hmm. who have um, Uh, had rights removed or or all sorts of aspects of livelihoods influenced and businesses that have caused problems and how are people responding to that to try to make things better so you've got a normative sense of trying to make things better Mm -hmm. so i can see that um what what, what's your thinking ahead pick a couple of kind of high hopes or priorities (laughs) for this is not, not a comprehensive view but just what do you think
2: so to I think bring this together? One area, I think, two things that that affect both Coldo's and my work is um, the need to address privatization of some of our social goods, so privatization of the NHS, uh, privatization of education in the UK, uh, and then the other thing would be how we address climate change from a human rights perspective. Um, so, taking the first one, you know, we are in a place right now where the NHS has been deprived of financial support from the public sector for a very long time, uh, and in the midst of this has had to address a pandemic, has had to address other crises, um, and remains quite underfunded. And the solutions that are being proposed right now by government are largely around how do we bring in private capital to shore this up, as somebody from the U.S., uh, that's deeply terrifying for me. I, I lived through privatization. Um, I have spoken publicly about the fact that my family was deeply affected by privatization of, of medical services in the States to the point that, that we almost lost my mother twice as a result of that. Um, and so for me, having the conversation around how do we, how do we empower people locally to understand the impacts of privatization in this area, to understand what it means to bring in private capital to something that should be a social good available to people on an equal basis, regardless of how rich or poor they are, that to me is a really important part of our work for the next ten years. Because um, the idea that the U.S. would follow what the or sorry, the idea that the U.K. would follow what the U.S. has already done, um, you you don't you don't need to predict destitute futures, right? You can just look across the Atlantic and you will see the devastation that that pathway holds. Uh, it's not just a problem. It is also a human rights issue, right? Like this is the social rights that that Koldo and I work on um, at the heart of, of this discussion. The other thing is climate change. Um, we need to have a conversation about how do we have these long-term transitions into something that's more sustainable, in a way that really protects people. Um, you know. When you look at major economic shifts in the past, they always come at the expense of the most vulnerable in society already, the people who are already on that sort of economic precarity. And so having a conversation and empowering people to really take a hold of that future and to inform and influence the political decisions domestically and internationally that are going to be made on their behalfs and, and at their expense, I think that's what we need to be talking about for the next 10 years. And I think that's where, I mean, that's where my research is focused for the next 10 years. Um, and my hope is that at the end of that, we're, we're in a better place than where we are today.
0: Very well said. Excellent.
1: Koldo, yeah. Yes, I will share definitely those two priorities as uh, privatization and climate change. I will add two more. Uh, one internal for us as human rights practitioners, researchers, people in this global community working on human rights. I, I hope us to become a little bit less legal and a little bit more local uh, so it's great that Tara and I happen to be lawyers but uh, we need more people in this community and thankfully we are having many more people in this community who are not lawyers I mean things have changed very much in the last two three decades and there are many people working on human rights issues who are not lawyers thankfully but we need more of that of that multidisciplinary, multi-experienced mm. perspective um, that's one thing and then more local you know is obviously we need uh, the treaties the international mechanisms we need to make the most of them. But we need to connect more with the realities of people on the ground at the local and national level. We need to speak in a way that makes sense to people where they are and that means using different language in different places and accepting those differences despite human rights being universal so that's one one, um, challenge or one message for us as a community and the other one I'm uh, more in terms of of themes and the outside world, I'm very interested in the the relationship between private property and social rights. Uh, When we talk about uh, responsibilities of businesses, when we talk about public investment on education, on health, on social security at the end of the day, you know, we are talking about the limits of private property and what businesses can or should be allowed to do with their own uh, money and and also how much money should the state be taking from, you know, taxation from the people mm. or how much uh, a should be allowed to do with uh, their properties. And uh, I think we need to have a conversation from social rights about uh, the social function of property and how to reinterpret private property in a way that um, that means that your own property is not your own castle and that you are allowed to do whatever you want, excluding everyone else, but that has to be interpreted in consistency with all the other goals that we believe in: education, housing, social security, and so on.
0: Excellent summary. Thank you. Both very much indeed. It's been a fascinating conversation. Kolder Kasler, Tara Van Ho, from the School of Law, with your human rights expertise, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for Thanks having us. us. That was Louder Than Words. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information, and do rate the pod if you can.